Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here, and today we've got two amazing AI tools for you guys to check out. So AI is obviously eating the world, and these two by HubSpot, where you're really gonna love. So the first one's called Content Assistant. Basically helps you create amazing content, which matters more today than ever. Everyone's creating content, so you've gotta stand out. Um, with HubSpot's AI-powered Content Assistant, you can brainstorm, create, and share content of Flash, all inside a super easy to use CRM. So, you know, think things like, brainstorming blog ideas, blog outlines, drafting copy on any topic from marketing trends to media kits or writing value props for your landing pages, prospecting emails and more. Uh, the second one is ChatSpot, which is basically a conversational bot that sits on top of your HubSpot CRM. So it's gonna automate all the manual tasks inside of HubSpot, help you engage more customers, close more deals and scale a little bit faster. Um, so if you want to find out more about how to use AI to grow your business, check out hubspot.com slash artificial dash intelligence. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, Finaloop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try Final Loop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash d2cpod and get 14 days free and a two-month PL within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Mike Jajo, who is the co-founder of Waterboy. So, Mike, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Waterboy, what you guys are building, and everything like that? Yeah, how, how far back do you want me to go? Because I mean, I can go all the way back. To let's go. Let's Dude, go all back. back. Uh, <laughs> let's go back. I remember Mike when we met um, a while back. You had reached out. You were working on on the the bags from Bali. Just just take it yeah. way back. Okay. We'll, we'll yeah we'll go way back, and then you guys can cut out whatever you need. Um, so okay, I guess. Uh, I'll even explain maybe my odd last name. I was born in Albania, uh, moved to the U.S. in sixth grade, and then throughout high school just knew I really wanted to do finance, primarily uh, investment banking, and that let me go to UT. I worked in investment banking for a year after college, didn't like it. It was not very creatively fulfilling, and then after that, I had that, an idea of like, hey, you have all these photo apps out there or where people can create and share photos, they can create and share music, et cetera. There's nothing for workouts. So I was working, this was 2013, started working on an app where people can create and share workouts. It was kind of fair, fair early days of Instagram and fitness. Um, and I saw a rise in social media influencers, but a lot of them didn't have a way to monetize. So we took some of our software stack and started private labeling them apps. That led me to start a company called Body Plan Fitness. Did that for a little over five years. And then while I was in Bali, uh, on vacation, my girlfriend at the time wanted to get some bags for her friends and it took up so much suitcase room. So I was like, let me see if I could buy these on Amazon. Realized like there's not much on Amazon. There's a ton of search traffic because I had tools like Jungle Scout, et cetera, to look at demand. And then randomly for one summer, I was like the biggest uh, ratten bag uh, woman's uh, purse seller. Uh, I knew that wasn't going to be like a lasting thing. That was just like a trendy fad, but it was like very cool to get experience on Amazon. And then uh, fast forward a couple of years, uh, at the start of 2020, I sold the company I was working on for the fitness apps and took six months off to decompress. And then uh, I was thinking through like what products and needs was I excited about in the market and that led me to create uh, Waterboy. And I can dive in further into what Waterboy is. Yeah, let's, let's, why don't you talk a little bit about what Waterboy is and, and the background of that company? Yeah, so uh, for me, honestly, the 
products out of her personal need. It was like nights I'd go out with friends and they'd get away from me and I'd wake up feeling rough in the morning. It felt like the main two products uh, that were on the market were either Liquid IV, which did a pretty good, like decent job at hydration, really good job at marketing, and Pedialyte, which I felt like did an even better job at hydration, but it was branded for kids. And to me, it's uh, whenever I'm waking up feeling rough, I'm not just dehydrated, but there's other symptoms I'm feeling around like nausea, anxiety, fatigue. So the premise was, can I make a better product for this use case? Because we're making it specifically for that. And can we have a bit more fun with the branding? Because we're in a space that's, you know, you take these products around fun times in your life, but a lot of brands have to be like overly clinical or very safe. Uh, so that was the premise of the company, put out the message on TikTok, it took off. And, you know, since then we've just been, you know, focused on like, you know, what's next. What do you mean, just for context for the audience, what do you mean it took off? Like yeah. what, what yeah. happened specifically? Yes, I'll tell you. Uh, I mean, this was February, 2021. I, I was driving in my car and I obviously was a consumer of TikTok during the pandemic, but I'd never really made my own personal TikToks. So I remember pulling over, I was about to get mail from my house. I was like, let me just make a quick video telling people what I'm working on and why. And I remember at first being like, oh man, this is gonna be so awkward if my friends see it, this is gonna get like 12 views. And I was like, you know what? My friends are probably not even gonna see it. Like what are the odds they see it? This account is not linked to any of my personal stuff. It's a branded Waterboy account. I uh, went to bed that night, woke up the next day, realized the account grew from zero followers to a little over 6,000. The video had a little over 100,000 uh, views. And after that, I remember thinking like, oh, TikTok's fairly easy. You just have to figure out a story to tell. And then, you know, people will get behind it. Put another four or five videos. They did well, but like maybe they got five to 10,000 views. But in relation to that video, it was not nearly like as high as that high felt. And then our seventh video ever, I made a video explaining why I was making Waterboy and why I used to drink uh, Pedialyte before and how this is different. And I, I would say that's the first video that really took off, got a little over 2 million views organically. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have landing page set up in our bio. So about 17,000 people left us their phone number. Um, and I remember having this massive SMS list and we were like, well, we're not exactly sure how many of these people are going to convert or not. So then we decided to run a pre-sale and that pre-sale ended up selling the inventory run that we were already planning on doing anyways a couple of months later. Oh, wow. So how, how many of the like 17,000 converted from SMS into the pre-sale? So the thing is, we honestly, so we already had a planned production run and numbers and everything that we were going to pay for regardless, because I think we were, we already had high conviction that the idea would work. Uh, so we had set, like our first inventory run was supposed to get us 100,000 in sales. And we sold that really in the first like hour and a half, hour and a half, two hours of sending out a text. And I just remember like clicking send and then looking at the Shopify live view. And like the, the numbers of visitors on site, just everything was going so fast that every time I'd refresh, it's like, especially the first 15 minutes, sales would jump from like 2000 to 15 to 26. Um, but I, I want to say a little over half, 55% or so click through. And then I can't remember the exact number. I, I want to say it was somewhere around 3000 orders uh, that sold the first 100K. So how, as, you see, are, as you're seeing all these orders coming in, like what's running through your brain? Are you like, how the F are we going to finance our next inventory purchase? You know, I remember when, when you were working on on the um, Bali bags, you were telling me like, you know, at that time, that was like four years ago or so, you were like, man, it's just tough. Cause like the cash you make, you then have to reinvest 
um, at least you have a brand here, which is like the big difference between drop shipping, right? Like the volley bags are a fad that, you know, that might just drop off. It's on another platform that you don't own here. You know, you know, you're just getting started. So, um, but you do know there's going to be a lot to finance or like was the margin covering all of that? Uh, what were you thinking that you, what basis did you have to cover when you saw those quarters coming in? Yes. So uh, both my co-founder and I had put initial capital that already had funded the purchase order, that inventory run. Um, and then obviously when we did a pre-sale and we got this money two months before that inventory run, now we were able to even, we could have, we actually, the money we put in, in the business, technically we never touched it uh, because the pre-sale money then paid for the inventory. And then the extra, like we just kept reinvesting and flipping inventory. And the first six months of the business, we didn't run any ads. Everything was organic. Uh, so, uh, and it was just my co-founder and I, and we weren't taking a salary. So I'd say we ran it fairly lane. So like every, all the profits are just reinvested into flipping inventory. That's amazing. And on the pre-sale, it was phone numbers. There was no email capture or was it both? <laughs> it was just, it was just phone numbers. I remember ha having a post strip integration and not even realizing I could have like an email as a step two of the flow. So it, it was just, it was just phone numbers. I'm, I'm happy I even had that turned on, you know, uh, when the video popped off because had I, you know, this was all happening like within a short time frame too. Like the website had gone live a week later. I'm like, oh, let me start making videos. And then 10 days later, you know, this happens. Yeah. And I'd love, I'd love to go a little bit deeper into that. Cause I think there's like a bunch of people who are starting brands who may not even like realize that they have opportunity to like tap into people who are interested in what they're talking about. Right. So like, what did you, I know you mentioned Postscript in terms of like collecting the phone numbers, but like, what did what did you have built out? How did you build the landing pages? Like, what did you have in place? So by the time that TikTok popped, you were able to actually at least capture some of that initial interest. Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. It was a Shopify website. We were just using like an off-the-shelf theme. Uh, the premise of the website was, how do I quickly in like three or four sections just guide someone into like our why? So it's like, here's like a hook, like here's your problem. Uh, here's like what we're solving for. And here's how we differ for other people in, in the market. I would say that was probably the structure of that landing page is very simple. I built it out myself probably in like two hours. And then after that it was, okay, well, I need, obviously, what are my buttons going to connect to? I have nothing to sell. So how can I capture this interest? And initially it was, do we want to do SMS or do we want to do email? And a lot of companies that were doing drops or seeing like drops at the time that I looked up to, a lot of them were heavy on SMS. So for me it was, okay, well, if there's a product people have excitement around, and it was, it was a pretty big risk, I guess. I should have tested both email and SMS, but I was like, I, f I feel fairly confident that they're going to give us their phone number. As long as on the SMS form, we make it very obvious that, hey, we're only going to text you at launch. We're not going to like spam you with like anything else. Uh, we're going to be like very mindful of your phone number. I think that's actually really interesting. Um, one thing that immediately comes to mind, I'd be curious, because like you said, you, ha you hadn't really tested it versus email, but it seems like if you've got the phone number and you've got like that text, maybe there's, a higher, there could be a higher conversion um, to purchase, right? If you're getting an SMS versus a, uh, you know, one of many thousands of emails that just pop into your email. Well, the thing is that he, like, I feel like the numbers worked because this all started from a personal one-to-one -one video on your personal account. And so like the trust was there. It wasn't like a faceless brand. Um, was it, a, but was it, right. was it your, yeah, was I it a branded was account, it? Mike? Yeah. So, so it was a branded account, it was Waterboy Can, but it was, uh, I think like all seven videos are just my face in it talking to the camera. That's interesting. 
Um, and so how did your, so I know you, then you, you've been mentioning your co-founder, um, your co-founder is a creator. Um, how did that come about? And then, you know, you, you, you said the other videos didn't do as well. What happened there? What was the content strategy from there to keep replicating the success? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say the first video did really well because was, this is my personal story as to why I'm making this. Um, and then in there too, if you watch that video, if you look at back at it, it, it will have elements that people maybe tell you to have. It had like a hook, it had the story, it had a close. So the hook was like, hey, TikTok, don't let this flop for the sake of my entire net worth. Uh, I had a software, I had a software company and I sold it to go all in in this company, right? So if you're watching that, you're like, oh, wow, like I'm intrigued where this is going. And then I was telling them the journey as to what, what I'm creating. And then I was follow along if you want to see me uh, build a beverage brand from hopefully nothing to something. Uh, because when we were going to launch, actually, that first video, we were supposed to be uh, a canned beverage. That's why the accounts are called Waterboy Can. And then we made the switch and the pivot to powder. And then shortly afterwards, we made the uh, stick uh, PD Light comparison video for powder. Um, our My co-founder, he is social media background. But originally, we were, we were both like very um, adamant about, let's see if we can get traction on our own with my messaging and seeing if we can get people to buy in. Because what we didn't want to happen is just to have like a one day pop of him like showing the products to his audience and not necessarily knowing if we even have product market fit. So originally like the whole premise was uh, no one even knew he was behind the brand until probably like a month in. Um, and so all, all the video, the success of the video wasn't like due to some strategy of him resharing it like or like him being in it. Uh, like I feel like whatever I did, anyone could have done it at that point too. Well, I think that's really important in terms of um, like understanding what some sort of product market fit looks like, even if it pertains to the product and the problem you're solving, the messaging that you're able to do before necessarily just like launching with a bigger creator who's going to get you in front of more eyeballs. But if you don't have the like traction there to back it up and have it tested, then it's going to do the same thing. So, but I'd be curious who who is your, why don't you tell us a little bit about who your co-founder is? And, um, you know, how you integrated that into the, uh, like launch once, once you guys had already validated that product market fit. Yeah. So my co-founder, uh, he was on a reality show called the bachelorette. He was one of the contestants on there. And then like a season or two after he went on again for this thing called bachelor in paradise. So social media personality, similar background to me. We both worked in finance. He worked at uh, Goldman, I think in their special situations group. So I knew he was smart and he had the social media piece to it, which I felt like would be helpful to our company. And funny enough, we were both like talking or romantically interested in this one girl uh, named Sarah at the time. And like, uh, it just, we all this, uh, like we decided to be friends. And I remember texting her being like, Hey, do you mind introing me to Connor? I know he's in Austin. We're up to similar things. It'd just be good to have a chat. Uh, we just met up for coffee. And then like within a couple of months that turned into this idea. And then us like probably seven months later launching a company. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, how did, how did it go once you guys had gotten through your first like call it production run and you were like, okay, now let's like start bringing this to his audience. How did that start to resonate? Did it really help you grow? Like, what did you see? Cause like, I know a lot of people are interested in working with creators on brands. So like, yeah, why don't you just walk us through how it unfolded? Yeah, I think, uh, so originally we were supposed to be a canned drink and the company that helped us with the formula and everything, their expertise was in can, but they did have stick pack powder machinery. So for us was, okay, well, let's work with them on the first run because they're familiar with everything. And when we realized when it was time to make the product, 
that they didn't have like quite the machinery to make just like the output and everything. So for us, the next step was how do we get to another packaging facility that primarily specializes in, in powders and stick packs so they can make more in like a, a more timely manner. Um, and I would say the first time we launched, like the flavor was not very good at all. Like for us was, oh, as long as the product works and it helps people, like they won't be that mindful of taste. They'll just like what's in it. And we quickly found out that people are very mindful of taste, like who would have thought, right, in beverage. Uh, like some people are like, whatever, I'll just chug it. But most people are very mindful. So for us on the next step was now we need to be in a packaging, another a stick pack manufacturing facility ASAP and figure out a better way to make the product. Um, like the quickest way for us was we had so much ginger in the product that lemon lime just tasted like ginger. So the the quickest like way to pivot is we just called the flavor lemon ginger. It was the exact same formula. Um, and we went to our new packaging facility and they were able to turn around on it, uh, thankfully quickly, just because we paid them more to do so. But, um, yeah, I, th I think the thing we didn't plan for initially is that it takes, there's quite a bit of lead time, especially in, uh, 2021 when there's packaging ex uh, delays across the entire supply chain that, oh shit, now we sold everything. And for us to get more inventory made is going to take, you know, like an extra X amount of weeks. So we went out of stock, I think for like a month and a half. And during that month and a half, we just focused on building like the brand or audience, getting more people signed up on the SMS list. And then we were ready to do like a uh, launch too. And that, and that kind of issue kept happening because we were just funding everything with inventory that we would like restock, it would sell out. And then we would have two months, a month without inventory and then kind of do that same thing over and over. Um, and now we're but that's what allowed you to not have to raise financing, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah, for pros sure. and cons. Yeah. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Like I, I think for us that worked better because then it allowed us to focus more on like our why, the brands, creatives, organic, et cetera. And we weren't just like throwing money at like some other problems. And then we took all those learnings from six months. And finally, when we were in a place that we were better able to do so, we started then running paid ads behind like our high performing organic creatives. And then that really helped uh, grow and scale the company. I want to, um, I want to, I want to let Blaine continue on this thread, but I want to take a step back and, and ask this question that I know most people in the audience might be thinking, which is, you know, how everyone is curious about how do I get to work with a creator? And so you approach this creator, but you didn't even have the full solution. You're still looking for the, you're like, you know, Hey, we're going to have to figure this out. Um, you didn't know him previously. So what advice do you have for anyone, um, that might be trying to partner with a creator? What, you know, what is it that made this partnership work from the beginning with a business intent? Or did you, do you yeah. think you just got really lucky, um, in the sense that, you know, you guys bonded and, um, it was a friendship first or something? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think for us, the elements that helped is we had a similar background so we could relate on that. We both lived in the same city. We were both in a similar stage in which we were selling at the company where we were pr previously working on. So that timeline matched up really well. But And then I also think too, sometimes uh, a lot of people have this idea that I'm going to partner with a creator that have X amount of social media followers and they get Y amount of views and like Z percentage is going to convert over. And sometimes those like metrics don't hold true, right? A smaller creator can drive more than a bigger creator, et cetera. I would say like the product market fit and there being like tailwinds behind the industry you're in is probably more important. Unless you're, you know, if you're working with like a Mr. Beast, sure, like you can probably launch a product in any category and you'll do well. Uh, but I would say for most people, ra rather than like 
thinking, oh, if I can get this creator, it's going to just miraculously solve itself. It's figuring out where's there's where's there white space in our already growing category, and what like issue can you solve that doesn't quite exist out there. And then the creator then will just more or less be like gasoline on the fire, but they're not going to help you start the fire. And then my next question is like in terms of like now what running the business looks like with a co-founder that's also a creator is like, are you guys both like equally involved in terms of the operation or is it, do you handle different, like, like what are your, I guess, more specific responsibilities now and, you know, how much of, how much, how, how do you, each of you guys contribute basically? Yeah. So we're, I mean, everyone work uh, right now I'm in LA obviously, but everyone works in the office, uh, full time in person. And we have a fairly small team, just four and a half of us. Um, I would say everyone on the team is very creative. So everyone contributes in some creative capacity, whether it's organic content, whether it's ideas for like branding collapse partnerships, et cetera. My role now is, has been a little bit more production operations, Amazon, and then some direct to consumer, like uh, doing like the media buying and performance ads. Uh, and then I help out with like SMS and email. Cool. And yeah, and I guess um, just for clarification, just piggybacking off Ramon's question about like working with a creator. So is your co-founder like as physically involved in the day-to-day as you are today? Or is he juggling like other stuff and this is one of like the projects that he works on? Or is he like pretty, uh, you know, involved in the weeds in terms of like what you guys are doing? Yeah, no, he's pretty involved. I would say he's just as involved as I. I would say maybe in the first six months before we even launched the product, there was a bit of transition on both of our ends because he still had a lot of social media things and there was maybe not that much clarity on how things were going to work out. And then I think when we both saw things starting to do well and take off, we realized like that's where we're going to focus our attention on. And I think I was fortunate in the sense that I have a co-founder that's social media and creator based, but his main goal is to grow the business. And I think the last like six to 12 months, I don't know if he's even done any like ad deals. He's trying to like cut that off. Uh, there's times where that access does, you know, help, you know, if he's in an influencer branded trip or if he's in certain events, he can help plug the product. But I, I would say his focus is not so much like his personal brand or social media, and it's more uh, the company, which is tough to find because I know a lot of times people work with creators where the creator, you know, did maybe one post here, one post there, and they kind of like went MIA. But I would say like everyone's in, you know, in the office 40 plus hours a week. That's amazing. Um, my next question comes down more to like the business side in terms of like how you guys continued to grow it. So you mentioned you guys are uh, up and running on a couple channels now. And now that you've made it through your first couple inventory runs, like it seems like there's a bit more stability in the business. So um, why don't you walk me through what like what your channels are, how you sell across those different channels and what kind of, you know, some of the strategies are that you guys use to sell on, whether it's D2C, Amazon or anything else you guys do? Yeah, I would say early on, we relied heavily on TikTok Organic to sell and establish that product market fit. And then around January of 2022, we started taking that creative and running paid media behind it on Meta, uh, just Facebook, Instagram. And we did some TikTok ads too. Um, and we probably did that for, I'm trying to remember, we did, we did that for some time and then we introduced the product to Amazon. Uh, originally our fear was, oh, if we introduce our product to Amazon, are people just gonna buy on there versus their own you know, online channel? And we found most of the sales from Amazon were incremental. But we're also pretty mindful on how we have a differentiator on our website versus Amazon, you know, whether it's a different pack size, whether it's a flavor launch that's delayed, et cetera. Um, but I, I would say for us, because we have such a small team, 
that we obviously have to stay focused and we just try to do like just a few things well because it's it can be so distracting sometimes right like we get bombarded by agencies all the time like you know you want to do influencer marketing affiliate marketing someone wants to do google adwords like pinterest snapchat you there's just so many so for us it's okay what are, what are our core competencies if it's creating content okay where does this content do a really good job living and how can then we like focus and double down on those efforts that are already working while still maybe being mindful at testing at a smaller scale in case something happens and we're not too reliant on uh, one channel. We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals, and we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So, Anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. So when you look at when you look at, at the operation of content, so like, you know, there's the commercial photography content, you mentioned UV Suna, then there's the UGC, like how much of your guys' content is like studio produced versus UGC? Is it hundred percent UGC? Is it is there a combination of studio? Is it all in-house? Like, what's that operation look like in strategy? Yeah, I would say the studio shots are mainly the assets that live on, like, Amazon or on our website. And it's mainly the product shots. Um, a lot of our ads are mainly UGC. And for, like, the longest time, it was just a, a lot of videos of me. And then we work with other uh, smaller creators to also help us make some of those assets. And then sometimes two people will make good videos about us on their own. And then we'll reach out to see if, you know, we can work together to use that for paid ads. Ramon, did you have anything else you wanted to ask on uh, on content or? Well, the the only thing I'm thinking through is like, how did you guys think about volume, right? Because like, especially with organic content, this is always a big question of like, all right, quality versus quantity, um, you guys nailed the strategy. All right. Are we 10 xing output or are we being really careful and thoughtful about our brand voice? And for some reason, every, every video we put out is hitting like, what, 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 what did your volume look like? Let's say, let's call it TikTok organic. Was it a video a day? Was it 10 a day? Uh, no, not, not close. I would say earlier days were maybe one every day or two. And then now we're probably two to three a week. Um, for, for us, it wasn't, I mean, for us, it's not so much like in order for us to 10 X because there, there become, there's a ceiling and a limit on how much organic output you can put out there. Right. And then, yes, you can partner with more creators and put more organic output out there. But to us was if we already know like what videos do well and what structure works for us, we can always get 10 X like the views by just simply putting more ad spend behind it. Um, so I, I would say not not that we're like too safe and like every asset has to be super brand forward, but we probably go more for like, okay, these are just the videos that we want to make and we have a reasonable degree of confidence that we'll do well and then we'll just make sure they get more views uh, through the paid side. It's it's just so interesting because like there's also then brands that like their game is just putting out crazy volume and so it's just different things work for different brands. So you guys think you understand the algorithm or have a hold or grip on like what works for you and your brand or is it a total like 
shot in the dark for every video you put out. Yeah, I, I, I honestly wouldn't say... Like, I, I see all these videos all the time, and maybe because I engage with them on my For You page that come up of, like, the algorithm changed, so and this and this and that changed. And I, I honestly don't really try to pay attention to the algorithm at all. Maybe I should in hacks, but to me, it's like there's some elements that have never gone out of style, right? So if it's it's like, okay, what's our goal on TikTok, right? Okay, right now we're going to use this platform to entertain and build a community and build a brand. And what way do we want to do so, right? Like, do we need to show them different parts of our business? Do we, like, is storytelling the main way we want to show this? I, I We think of it more of like, what are we trying to achieve on each platform? And like, what does this certain video, like, like what story does it tell and does someone care at the end of the day because i think a lot of brands take the approach of this is what i want people to see but not so much of what do they want to see so it's not a matter of like to me it's not a matter of like oh if i use this hook or be very dramatic or do this like yes you might go viral once but then what happens after that you know because I, I think so too many people chase this like big viral hit because they see sometimes these case studies of this video sold me out and yes, it might get you, you know, 50, 100, 200K in sales and then they'll wear off and then what happens then, you know? So I, I don't think we ever approach any video of like, we're trying to make a viral video. It's what story is this video telling? Like, what are people gaining from this? Because we don't see competition on TikTok, like between us and a liquid IV, it's us and other content creators and other videos that are way more engaging to watch. So why would someone want to watch ours? One thing I liked that you really just said, that you just said was, uh, it's not about what you want to show the the like viewers. It's more about what do they want to see from you. Um, so why don't you walk us through a little bit about what works? What do they want to see uh, from Waterboy when you guys are creating content? Yeah, I mean, I think in the early days, people wanted to know like what we were, you know, and like maybe what it does for them. But then after a while, you're just going to sound like a you know broken record if you're just making like the same videos, right? And like one strategy could be like, I could go out there and hire 100, 200, 300 content creators on a smaller scale, have them all be affiliates with links, pump out the same videos and some of them will hit and some of them won't. And we'll capture that and try to think of that, like, does that feel, you know, spammy and what's the lasting branding impact of that? But for us now, it's like, okay, some people know what the product does. Um, what else do they want to see? And a lot of people like, they want to see like the behind the scenes of the company and more of like the interpersonal dynamic between people. So I think our TikTok channel now almost works as like, not nearly as good as the show The Office, but more or less it gives you like that, you know, that vibe. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think, you know, we've seen it work like that for a couple of brands, but I think a lot of brands might maybe struggle with like being like, oh, do we want to be like that authentic? Should we put it out there? But like, if you're able to like tap into that and it seems like, um, you know, the way to, the way to do it. So my next question is on, um, on like product mix, right? You mentioned you guys launched with couple different products and um I'd, I'd just like to know a little bit more about how you thought about how many products to take to market like what the formats were how many total SKUs you were like playing with I see you even you guys even have like a merch store now so why don't you just walk us through how you like organized everything and and thought through everything that you've got through now yeah I, I would say our main hero and like initial product we launched with is the weekend recovery and in that it was okay let's obviously people are going to need more than you know one or two flavors uh you know let's roll out flavors and it's always an interesting and tough balance because we're you know like we're running out of stock and we don't have sometimes enough line time to make these stick packs so it's kind of hard to be like okay now i'm going to introduce more flavors and more products uh 
hindsight's twenty twenty. but a thing I wish I would have solved for earlier was just more manufacturing capacity and different uh, co-men so we weren't so reliant on like one or two. Um, and then it, it became of like, okay, when do people take our products? A lot of people are telling us they take our weekend recovery for sports, but if we made a product for sports, it would look different than the weekend recovery because the symptoms you feel after a night out are not the same, you know, after a workout. And even in the workout category alone, there's a use case on before a workout, which with an energy component, and there's an after a workout with a recovery component. Um, so I think the, the premise of the company to us remains the same is how do we make hydration clean and functional? And how do we make formulas specifically when people need them rather than like a one general formula, which would be really easy on our production, but you kind of have to do a somewhat of an average job across uh, every use case. So, so Mike, your previous company was a fitness influencer app, and then the other one was a drop shipping one. And now you're talking about like adding different flavors into the mix. These are decisions that if you get wrong, could wipe you out financially in the company. Um, if you get the entire production run, uh, production run wrong, and this is like your first time doing this. So how did you prevent yourself from making those mistakes that we hear from other companies of getting wiped out because, you know, messing up the entire line of production and, and having to start over? Did you seek mentors? Who were those mentors? And, and yeah, how did you not make those mistakes from the first try? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say on one end, we've been fortunate. We partnered with the right people. And some of that came from like extensive vetting. Uh, we, I mean, we have made mistakes. There's a packaging run where it was like the wrong flavor in all the bags and we had to put stickers over them. Right. And even that decision was, do we throw everything away or do we just put a five cent sticker? Then now the bag doesn't, you know, look the best, but, and even when that happens, then obviously we have to be transparent about what happened and tell everyone. So I, I think a lot of times too, people, if you are transparent with them and you let them know the decisions you're making and why, uh, they'll support you more. I mean, like even on their second uh, product drop, I was like, oh my God, we probably bur burned so many first time buyers because the product doesn't taste very good. And so the text was like, hey, sorry, like the first launch, we thought if the product was good for you, you wouldn't care how it tastes and it tastes like ass, but this is like what we did to address X, Y, Z. Understand that it's still going to be salty and it's not going to be perfect, but we're working on it. Um, and you know, I think if you're transparent with people as to like what you're achieving and solving and let them in, uh, they'll, they'll rally behind you. But yeah, in, in terms of, and also with like production runs too, when we were running out of inventory, I mean, we were building a margin of safety. We were never like, we're going to take all the cash on the bank and put it all on inventory. So we could have, yes, we could have grown faster if we were more aggressive on that, but we were padding in like what happens if an entire run, just something goes wrong and we have to burn through it all. So we, I mean, we built margins of safety uh, in there. Mike, the other thing I want to talk to you about is the merch component. I think it's really cool. And obviously you guys are doing the whole, um, you know, the water boy products, but like building out a merch store isn't something that every brand does. Why don't you tell me about how you guys did it, how you executed on it, what it's been like, how it pairs with your community. And yeah, just walk us through that part of the strategy. Yeah. I mean, the merch was simply people wanting to rep our merch. And I had like, I don't even know if I have it here. I've, I had like a hundred of these green hats and they sold out on the first drop and people would like DM me until the end of time. And I, the issue was, it's like, well, we're so focused on product. We don't even have inventory. So ran out to take attention away and use it towards merch. It just didn't seem like the right investment of time and resources from the team. And after like a year and a half, probably close to two years, 
that, I mean, that's how long it like took us to come up with merch. And and the whole premise around merch is, can we do it in a way that's maybe a little bit like fun to us rather than, because we could have very easily just slapped our logo off of like uh, more or less like a drop shipping type clothing website and just given it to people. But yeah, we wanted some pieces that were a little bit more fun to us uh, that people, you know, would wear maybe even if they weren't supporters of the brand. And then how did you guys execute on it? Did you, um, you know, work with a different like kind of merch uh, provider? Did you like how how involved did you get and how operationally heavy was the lift to be able to support a merch store? Unfortunately, unfortunately, way too involved. And maybe in hindsight, I, I wish I wouldn't because I don't know. For me, it's like I try to run things efficiently. But when I get quotes... Uh, like we even try to do collabs with brands, some that you probably know of. And we got, when we got pricing back for hoodies and joggers and everything, they were like four or five X. It was just very hard to justify, even though everything was solved. So, uh, because I had prior experience sourcing from, uh, sourcing from Asia. I mean, it, I, I was as involved as me and a designer. Uh, not only were we like buying it all from Asia, but coordinating our own freight because the freight rates that were charging us were much higher. So like, it, involved pretty much end to end even with like an inspection person on the facility like I, unfortunately yeah that probably wasn't the best use of my time um looking back but at the same time too just like yeah i feel like i'm generally involved in every um, every phase of the business and it's, it's kind of hard to uh yeah what's the size of the team today uh team i mean so right now we have uh it's four full-time uh one part-time um, but obviously like, you know, there's a lot of people in production, a lot of people in fulfillment, et cetera. They're just technically not our own employees. What is the biggest, what is the most challenging part of the business now that you're at this stage? Um, I mean, right now we're solving for is tomorrow. I'm actually flying to a new production facility that can make like 10 times the product at half the speed. So that's one thing I'm really excited about because once we solve for some of these out of stock issues that allows us to do other things that we haven't been able to do online. Um, so first and foremost is solving for how do we keep enough stock of product? Um, how do we introduce new flavors that people like? And then from that to then the next priority is like really creative performance, uh, just because right now we're all online. And then we're now finalizing conversations with the retail for next year is just a lot longer lead time, but we'll finally be in retail next year. So now it's setting us up for retail and figuring out like how to roll that out properly. So it's interesting that you're flying out of LA. Um, so LA, you know, you, you were in Austin, you're moving back to Austin, I heard. So Austin, another CPG capital. I'm curious if somebody was to start a CPG brand today, what would you say it's better, Austin or LA? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think it would depend on maybe what the product is, where their personal network is. It's kind of, it's kind of hard because uh, if you're starting a CBG brand too, like it depends on is the focus industry going to be to be just online um, and like what their core competency is, right? Like in LA, you can find more social media people. You can find more support around uh, creative, right? But Austin too is like a really good city for CBG as well. So I, I, yeah, I think it really depends on the team's core competency, the product, etc. It's kind of, yeah, hard to answer. But I, I mean, I love both cities. Um, yeah. I have to go back to Austin though. You know, the, the rest of the team needs me. I've had a good, uh, I've had a good six weeks out here. Yeah. Had a good run. Um, my last question before we, we wrap up is you mentioned you're thinking about going into retail in the future. Um, 
what does that look like for a product like yours? Are you bringing everything in the merch to retail? Are you just bringing a couple of the hero products? Uh, who are those retailers? And um, yeah, what's kind of the strategy behind your product and how you take it to retail? Yeah, I mean, I would say our product, especially the weekend recovery, it's a last minute need, right? So a lot of people aren't thinking, let me get it three, four, five business days ahead of time. Um, and just like when we added a product to Amazon, a lot of the sales were incremental. We feel like a lot of retail will be that too. A lot of people, unfortunately, were in the, they're in the aisles and they're looking for this product and they don't see us there. They're just buying the next competitor. Uh, so for us, it's understanding that being in, in more places is better, but then it's also at what phase of the business are we comfortable taking all, that on? So if we had brought, tried to bring it on a retailer a year ago and we're constantly out of stock, well, that would not be a very good relationship and they would remove us from the shelf. And now that we finally figured out operations that we have new facilities coming online, we're at a place where we can like fulfill bigger POs. We have the cash on the balance sheet to get paid back, you know, 60 plus days. Uh, so it's it's kind of that phase. And then the way I would structure it too, it's um, a year ago, a year or two ago, a retailer wouldn't have cared to have us on the shelves because... To them, it's, well, no one knows who your brand is. How are you going to bring incrementality to me? And if you're just going to try to capture my foot traffic, we're just exchanging dollars from product A to product B. So I think for us is establishing that brand and that community online and leveraging that now for retail and our product differentiators. I, I said last question, but I have one last question. I know community is like a big thing for you guys. And clearly from the get-go, right, having... 17,000 uh, numbers to text. So like how do, just talk to me a little bit about your kind of like life cycle strategy and like how you deal with community and your customers. Like how do you in keep your customers engaged? Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard, right? I don't, I don't think we have like a specific formula on like month one, this is what we lean heavy on month two, almost like a, I think a lot of it is just like organic, uh, the content people see from us, the way we talk via SMS versus email. Like uh, I, I would say like, speaking to less product personas or less personas probably helps right because then you flush out who is your community and everyone then like relates to that and i think maybe sometimes issue brands make is they are afraid to take be too risky because you're going to turn off xyz customer and they try to speak to everyone at once and they end up like not speaking to anyone uh so for us i don't think we take like a scientific approach to community other than like how do we let people into what we're doing in a way that, you know, they care about? And how do we listen to their needs and like and address them in a way that makes sense? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's really that. Sweet. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, we learned a bunch about Waterboy. And for anyone who uh, wants to follow along with you with Waterboy, why don't you shout out where we can find you? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? What are your socials? Where can we find Waterboy as well? Yeah, so Waterboy, it's Waterboy Can on uh, Instagram and TikTok, uh, waterboy.com for the website. And then if you go to our Instagram, I'm sure you'll you'll see a lot of photos of me and videos of me and you can tab over because my last name's a nightmare, you know, to, to say uh, on how to find me on Instagram. Uh, yeah. I have, I have one last question, actually. Was the waterboy.com domain available when you just search for it? No, it... Um, it this is what happened. We had Waterboy can because we were going to be a canned drink and then we had to pivot to powder and we wanted waterboy.com. It just wasn't available and we could have bought it at the time. It was just a decent price tag. And for us, it was a tricky balance between how long do we hold out because maybe the longer we hold out, either a competitor buys it underneath us or this person catches wind as to like what we are and increases the price tag. That, that, that was like one of our fears. And then the other thing too is like, well, how important is like how important is the domain name if we're linking to it? 
but like at times like this or in podcasts that just say waterboy.com it's it is very helpful it was worth the price we paid um but it was yeah it was definitely not available we bought it six months into the business sweet well there you have it waterboy.com um all right mike thank you that was a great episode yeah i had fun Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.